Back there on the table, there's a take-home quiz. So you take it home, bring it back next week, and we'll see how you did. They're out there on that table, so you take one of those quizzes, and we'll just see how you fare on that. We're going to begin talking tonight about critical issues of interpreting the Bible, which all of them have been critical issues, but we're going to get in now to some of the specific details of things. And before we begin our journey tonight, let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your precious word. Thank you for this nice group that's come out tonight. We pray that you would bless our time. We pray we would all mature and grow and learn more about how to study and interpret the scriptures. And Lord, we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off last week talking about the fact that the goal of studying to interpret the Bible is to know the exact meaning that the Holy Spirit of God intended when he inspired the words that were written in every context. That's the goal. The goal of Bible study is to accurately understand every specific text in its context. And there's only one system of interpretation that can do that, and that is a literal interpretation of the Word of God. So the only true way to arrive at an interpretation where you can say we know this is true is that we interpret the text literally. This is called the literal method of interpretation. And the illustration that we used as we introduced this idea to you was the illustration of when God told Noah to build an ark and gave him dimensions. He took that literally. If you go down there, as we said, cross the Ohio River and go into Kentucky, about 50 miles when you get across that river, on the right-hand side, you can go to that ark and you can see an exact replica that is to dimension, accurate dimensions of Noah's ark. Interesting side note to that. We stopped there one time on our way back. I wanted to go see that ark and we had our dog with us. And so I said to the guy, because you're in a parking lot and then they don't let you see the ark until you kind of get back there where it's visible. So I said to the guy, I said, look, we got our dog and could we go back there and then one of us will just like stay outside with the dog and one will go in and then when the other one comes out then the other one will stay out with the dog and the other one will go in and they said no so I said so let me get this straight here this is Noah's Ark and you can't have an animal near it which I don't think the guy appreciated that but that is what I said but anyway when Noah was given that instruction to build the ark he took it literally he didn't say well now what God really wants us to do is build a zoo for animals Or he didn't say, let's be rational about this. There's no water here. So he's not talking about the fact that there's a real flood that's going to come. He took that literally and he built a literal ark. And that's the way the Bible is to be taken. The literal method of interpretation is the method that interprets the Bible literally, understanding the words mean exactly what they say in their simple, ordinary meaning, unless something in the context indicates otherwise. For example, when we've been going through the book of Revelation, and we got into Revelation chapter 17, and we saw that there was this description of something with seven heads and ten horns. Well, later on, the text told us what they were. The seven heads were seven world power kings, and then the ten horns were ten kings that unite in the European Union, and you learn that later in the text. When you go to Daniel, in fact, let's do that. Let's go to Daniel chapter 7. I'll show you some biblical examples of what we're talking about here tonight. But in Daniel chapter 7, that'd be a good one to look at. In Daniel chapter 7, 
And notice verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. So now he gets this image here of beasts. Well, you drop down to verse 17, and we read, These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. So it's true that there are things that are stated there that seem to have or suggest that something figurative is being stated, but there's a literal interpretation to what's figurative. And that's key to this. So the literal interpretation takes the words for what they mean, but they don't look for secret meanings. They look straight at the text in an attempt to understand exactly what that text is saying. Now, the golden rule, and this is where we stopped last time, the golden rule of interpretation is when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense, therefore... Take every word at its ordinary, primary, usual, literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context indicate otherwise. Now, ordinary language contains figures of speech, but figures of speech are often used to communicate a literal truth. For example, you'll hear someone say, I've done that a million times. Well, now, what do you mean by that? We can start counting here from one and go to a million? No. It's a figure of speech that's designed to say this person's done that a lot of times. Many, many times, probably too numerous to count. Or how about this one? This is where the rubber meets the road. Well, now, can you imagine someone looking at that and saying, what are they talking about at church, the rubber meeting the road? They driving cars in the church? No, we're talking about this gets down to the real important issue that needs to be considered and discussed. What I'm saying here is in ordinary language, we use figures of speech to communicate a literal truth. Years ago, we were handling a text that dealt with pharisaical hypocrites, and there happened to be some elders from Papua New Guinea in the service. This was in Indiana. And they were listening to this and going through this text that was dealing with pharisaical hypocrites. And when we got done, they came up and said, you know what we call those people in Papua New Guinea? And I go, no, what do you call them? He said, skin people, skin people. In other words, it's just on the skin. It's not in their heart in any way, shape, or form. So they had, as it were, a figure of speech that's designed to communicate a literal truth about pharisaical hypocrites. So in a literal interpretation of the Bible, we realize that sometimes writers of the books of the Bible, use figurative language to make a point, but when they use the figurative language or they use the symbolic language, the reason they're doing that is they want to communicate a literal truth. All languages work like that. Now, I want to talk about three different kinds of things you'll see in the Bible that fall into this category. The first one is metaphors. Now, a metaphor is a figurative quality or name given to something that cannot possibly have literal applicability. That's what a metaphor is. It's a figurative quality or name given to something that cannot possibly have literal applicability. Go over to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, I draw your attention to verse 7. John chapter 10, verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. Now, Jesus calls himself a door. Right there, he calls himself a door. Now, we know that he cannot be referring to the fact he's a literal door. I mean, you know, with hinges and a doorknob on it. I mean, he's not talking about that. I mean, a hyper-literalist, I suppose, could do something with that. But when he calls himself the door, he's using a metaphorical image to make a point. And the metaphorical picture is designed to make a point that I'm the only way of entrance into a relationship with God. That's what he's teaching. I'm the only way of having a relationship with God, of getting into an entrance in a relationship with God. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Let me show you another one. Matthew chapter 5. And let's see. Let's look at verses 13 to 14 in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on hill cannot be hidden. Now, when Jesus says to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth, and he says to his disciples, you're the light of the world, he doesn't mean they're literally a bag of salt, and he doesn't mean they're a 100-watt light bulb. He's using a metaphorical picture here to make a literal point. So when we say we interpret the Bible literally, we're not saying that we don't allow metaphorical images to be used because we realize in all languages, people use a metaphorical language. Let me show you another one in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. Now, when a metaphor is used, sometimes... In the very context, we'll have the explanation to what the metaphor is. So if you go over to Daniel chapter 8, I think here's a great illustration of one such instance. In Daniel chapter 8, and I draw your attention to verse 3, Daniel 8 verse 3, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. So here's a picture of a ram. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the other one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat. So now you go from, I saw a ram to a goat. I see a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. Now there you have some metaphorical pictures that are used there. But if you drop down to verse 20 of the same chapter, Daniel 8, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Verse 21, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, who is none other than Alexander the Great. So what do we conclude from this? We conclude that when a biblical writer is, is using a metaphor, he's using a metaphor to make a literal point paint a picture to make a literal point. So when we say we agree to literal or we believe totally and only in a literal interpretation of the Bible, we're not saying that the Bible doesn't have metaphors. Secondly, the language includes similes. Now a simile is a figure of speech in which one thing is likened to another thing by comparison to make a point. 
And oftentimes in a simile, you'll read the adverb like or as. This is like that or this is as that. Let me show you a couple of examples. Let's go back to Judges chapter 6, if you would. Judges chapter 6, let me show you a good illustration of a simile in Judges chapter 6. Now, in Judges chapter 6, God is describing what he allowed to happen to Israel because she was doing evil in his sight. And what we read in Judges chapter 6 and verse 5, for they, he's talking about the Midianites and the Amalekites, they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like, there's the simile, like or as, they would come in like locusts for number, both they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So there is a comparison that is being made here between the infiltration of the Midianites and the Amalekites into Israel's land. It's being compared to something like locusts would do and just swarm in there and take it over. That's the point of it. Let me show you another simile. Go over to Matthew 23, if you would, please. Matthew chapter 23, we'll take one from the New Testament. And in Matthew 23... We read in verse 27 of Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like, there's our simile, you see the word like or as, that's your key, you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what Jesus is doing here is he's comparing these Pharisees to like whitewashed tombs. They're leading people to destruction, leading people in a way that's dead, not into a life relationship with God. So similes are a great tool of language to be able to communicate a literal truth. And that's the point of the simile, communicate a literal truth. One more in Matthew, as long as you're open there, back up to chapter 10 and verse 16. Chapter 10 and verse 16. Jesus uses another one, another simile here in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as, like or as, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. So now he's basically saying, I'm going to use this comparison analogy here of the fact that you're going out as sheep into a world filled with a bunch of wolves. Probably one of the more famous similes used in the Bible is in 1 Peter 5.8, where Peter says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And we examine the context. We observe that the devil is a vicious being who is out to devour and crush a believer specifically through pride. And that's mentioned in that context of pride. So there is a devouring that can take place through that. So when we say we believe in the literal interpretation of the Bible, we allow for metaphors, we allow for similes, and we also allow for allegories. Now an allegory, but we have to be careful with this because we don't want to get into allegorically interpreting the Bible. But an allegory is a figure of speech in which one communicates a literal truth by using another story or an illustration in an allegorical or figurative way to make the point. Now, one of the most famous ones from the Old Testament comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12. So I'd like you to go back there, 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is a very famous allegorical story 
that Nathan tells David. And he tells this story. And the point of the story is to drive home a literal truth. See, that's what you want to always remember about figures of speech. The point of a metaphor, the point of a simile, the point of an allegory is to drive home a literal truth, literal interpretation of a truth. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, here's what happens. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. Nathan said to him, you're the man. Now here is a remarkable allegorical story that is being used, inspired by God, being used to drive home a point that would bring David under conviction. And so the point of the allegory was a literal conviction for King David. That was the point of Nathan going and telling this story. There's another great example of this in the New Testament. If you go to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4, Paul, in one of the more famous allegories, and he flat out says it's an allegory in Galatians chapter 4. So in Galatians chapter 4, he specifically says what he's going to do in Galatians chapter 4, and notice verse 24 of what he says in Galatians 4 verse 24. Paul says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she's in slavery with her children. So what Paul is doing here is he's saying, I'm going to use the story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. I'm going to use that story as an allegorical story to show law versus grace. I'm going to use that as an allegory to determine law versus grace. In fact, you'll notice in verse 31 of Galatians 4, so then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of a free woman. So he basically uses a bondwoman and a free woman in the story. They each have children to establish law versus grace. But he says, I'm allegorically speaking here. So what we conclude from this is, in a literal interpretation of the Bible, we understand that the writers sometimes used figurative language. They used metaphors. They used similes, they used allegories, but I drive this point home to you. The reason they use that is to make a literal point. That's the key. They're making a literal point. And they're not just getting stories in there so you can make up something, whatever you want. And usually, in the context, you can pretty much pinpoint what the point is that they're trying to make. Now, the next question is, what are the three courses that are closely related to a literal interpretation of the Bible? There are three main fields of study and disciplines that are closely related to study and literally interpreting the Bible, hermeneutics, Bible study methods, and exegesis. 
We want to talk tonight a little bit about hermeneutics. What is hermeneutics? Well, hermeneutics is the art and science of Bible interpretation. That's the best definition of hermeneutics that you could ever have. It's the art and science of Bible interpretation. It is a science because there are specific rules you have to follow. There are specific rules you have to follow in any science, and there are specific things that govern what you do. It is an art because the more one practices it, the more skilled one will become. The one will become better at it the more you practice it. So it is an art. It is a science. It's the art and science of Bible interpretation. Now, the actual Greek word hermeneia and its verb hermeneuo occurs some 19 times in the New Testament. And it literally means to give an interpretation, and it's used exactly that way in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Luke chapter 24, and I'll show you where that very word is used. And I don't think it's a coincidence that God has that word used in Luke chapter 24. And what's interesting about this word, it is in an intense form of hermeneia. Actually, hermeneuo, it's the verb form. But what we see in Luke 24 and verse 27 When Jesus was meeting with these guys on the road to Emmaus, notice verse 27, Luke says, And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained, and there's our word, hermeneuo, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. I want to talk just about that word explain for a minute. In the Greek language, you can have a word like hermeneutics or hermeneia, but then you can put a preposition on the front of it which really intensifies and strengthens the word. And what Luke chooses to use here, and I think this is significant to our study, he uses the word de-hermeneuo, hermeneutics. He uses a D on the front of it, which means Jesus gave a thorough, thorough, complete explanation. That's the color and flavor of this word. So we would say Bible interpretation means You thoroughly understand it and you thoroughly explain it. That certainly would come into play with the word that's used there. Here's another interesting use of the word hermeneia. If you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I find this really interesting because in the charismatic movement, they don't want much explained at all. They want to have some feeling and they want to really experience something. But boy, I'll tell you what, you carefully study the scriptures and go through 1 Corinthians, it becomes pretty clear that God expects things to be very carefully explained and taught. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, we read, And to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. In other words, there was to be an interpretation and explanation of what was stated. There was to be some type of interpretation given. It was not supposed to be some babbling where people just had some emotional experience. There was to be serious thought and interpretation that went along with this. Go over to chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians and verse 26. It's interesting, this word hermeneutics or hermeneia is used often in 1 Corinthians. I think God has it there because the Corinthians were doing anything but carefully searching and explaining things. They were in a free-for-all emotional frenzy. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble each one as a psalm and teaching and a revelation and as a tongue and as an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. Things were to be interpreted. So interpretation is an accurate analysis and explanation of what is in a text. That's what hermeneutics is. It's an accurate 
interpretation and analysis of what a text says. And hermeneutics deals with the principles that are necessary in order to come to a true, accurate interpretation and understanding of the passage. It is often closely related to Bible study methods, but it's not just identically the same. In fact, we could say, what's the difference between Bible study methods and Bible interpretation? And I'm not sure I understand this completely, but I'll give you the best of what those that have studied this have concluded. I think, first of all, Bible study methods deals with how we study the Bible, whereas Bible interpretation is, as I'll use a metaphor, where the rubber meets the road, deals with how to interpret a text in the Bible. So it's more than just how to study it. It's how do we actually get to the point where we're interpreting a text. Bible study method deals with Bible study methodology with the goal of discovering the actual meaning, but Bible interpretation deals with the science of how to analyze a passage and arrive at the actual meaning. Now, pretty much to this point in our study, we've been looking at Bible study methodology. There's no question the two disciplines cross paths. That's why we said we could call this Bible study methodology hermegesis, because they all touch paths and cross paths, but they're not identically or technically the same. When one wants to come to a true interpretation of a passage, the question is much more than just how do we study the Bible. I mean, the question when you want to come to a true interpretation of a text is, well, what do I have to actually do to do that? What are the rules that I have to follow in order to do that? This is true in any profession. I mean, it's one thing in a profession to just look generally at the profession but then when you look at somebody that does it for a living, you say, well, what do you actually do to have to do that? I mean, that's where you get the difference between, I think, Bible study methods and Bible interpretation. Dr. Elliot Johnson said the difference between the two is that Bible study methods is how do I go about to discover the meaning of a text, and hermeneutics is how do I know I have discovered the true meaning of the text. Now, when it comes to studying to interpret the Bible... Michael Heiser said, a better synonym for Bible study than Bible reading would be Bible research. I think a better synonym would be text research. And when you talk about research, of course, research is research. It takes tools and tenacity and time, and it's not easy. It's important to realize that the Bible, as no other book, is God's book. But as all other books, it's a book written for humans, and we've already covered that. God did inspire his word for people to read. The fact that it's God's book demands the utmost care, and it should demand that we be as true and accurate as we can in our interpretations. The fact that it is a book for humans means there can be the potential of misunderstanding, and there can be the potential of misunderstandings and misinterpretations. It's precisely at this point where I think a course like this is demanded, because our goal is to be an accurate interpreter. That's our goal. Now, the truth is, although we've not taken a formal course on how to interpret a newspaper or how to have a conversation, we've been doing this all our lives. Someone wisely said hermeneutics should teach us to read the Bible as any other book and at the same time read the Bible as no other book. I mean, every time you watch a program on TV or you read a book, you follow the context. I mean, you are practicing really a form of hermeneutics when you do that. If you watch a TV program, you're following along in the story and you're practicing a form of hermeneutics. I was watching an old Perry Mason and came into the room and Mary came into the room and I felt I needed to set the context for her. I don't even think she wanted to know it, but I just felt the urge to set the context for her, to let her know where this program was and what was going on. And for us, a system of hermeneutics is applied 
but we don't formally study it. I mean, you don't take a course on how do I watch TV, and you don't take a course on how do I read a book. So you don't actually go through some study like this when you go and sit down and watch a TV program or you're going to sit down and pick up a book and read it. But when it comes to God's word, the stakes are a lot higher. They're a lot higher here than us just having a conversation with somebody or reading a book about something that piques our interest. I mean, for one thing, the Bible was written at a different time in different languages and in different cultures. And to properly interpret the Bible would mean we'd have to crawl back into various contexts. We have to know something about language to be able to look at words on paper and come to a right interpretation. We have to know something about language. We have to know something about culture. We have to know something about history. And I think this is a critical point. You cannot superimpose our rules of English to the rules of Greek and Hebrew because that can lead to faulty conclusions. And I'll give you a great illustration of this. There's a group of people. They're Mormons. They'll go door to door, they'll knock on your door, and when you try to ask them, do you believe Jesus Christ is God, they'll say, oh yes, we believe he's God, but he's not the God, not the second member of the Trinity God, he's a God. And they will use as a basis for their argument John 1.1. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And they'll point out, they've been programmed in their little system they'll point out that the last noun God in that verse does not have an article the. So it doesn't say he's the God. They'll say he is a God, but he is not the God. And that's what they'll say. Now these guys, and I've gone head to head with them before, they don't know what they're talking about and they don't know anything about the Greek language. And so when one of these guys came to our home, this was a long time ago, a lot of years ago, and they threw that out, I said, you guys know Greek? No, but if you knew it, I said, ah, it just so happens I do. I said, I'll tell you what, just stand here a second. So I walked in the house and I got a Greek text. I walked back out. I opened up to the text that they were quoting, John 1.1. 1, 1. I said, now, here's the text here. I want you to read that. For, don't read it in English. Don't translate it. Just read the Greek to me. Well, of course, they had no clue what they were into here. They didn't know. I said, I'll tell you what your problem is. You're trying to argue from an English student's perspective by saying having an article the or not having an article the makes one greater or lesser in significance. That's not how Greek works. When Greek is used, if you don't have an article, it's stressing something else entirely. For example, if we say there is the piano, what I mean by that is I want that piano identified. In the church, there's the piano, I want the article the to identify that specific piano. But if I say there is a piano, you're thinking in English, well, it's not as significant as the piano. Oh, yes, it is in Greek. Because what I'm saying, if I say there is a piano in Greek, I'm saying there is all the character and quality and attributes of what makes a piano a piano. I'm emphasizing something else. So what we have happening here is we have a group of people who are going around with their little English memorized rote system, door to door, trying to convince people to believe something. They don't even know what they're talking about. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. So this becomes, in my opinion, the importance of analyzing things like this because you come to understand what truth is. And that's the point we're after. We're after truth. Well, our time is gone tonight, so we're going to have to pause here. As I mentioned for you, there's a quiz out there on the table. Take it home. 
Bring it back next week. We'll go over the answers for you. You can do it if you want. Don't do it if you want. Don't cheat. You'll regret that the rest of your life. You know, study for it. Read it over and study for it. But I'm telling you, I'll tell you a story. I was down in my first pastorate in Indiana. And it was years after I'd taught at the Grand Rapids School of Bible Music. And I get this letter from this girl who said, you just need to know I cheated. I've just been living with the fact I cheated on a test. And I'm going, what am I supposed to do with this? Actually, I'm glad that she was sensitive. She wanted to make it right. I give her credit for that. So just have fun with it. Don't cheat. Good night. The Lord bless you.